marijuana, pot, grass, shake, bud, ganja, chronic, cannabis. Cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than 10 years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey buddy. Hey, buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter-approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment and legalization go up in smoke? (coughs) Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. The lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on the COIN Podcast Network. In part one of our conversation with cannabis economist Bo Whitney, we focused mostly on what a cannabis economist does, how large our state's cannabis economy could grow, and the incredible revenue potential for a national market if there's federal reform. In part two, we'll take a look at how local, state, and federal policy could harm our industry, and if they don't work in tandem, could allow global competition the ability to dominate the future of the cannabis industry. You're listening to Mainstream Media. Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you. Welcome back to Mainstream Media. Back with cannabis economist Bo Whitney. Bo, is there a disconnect right now between state lawmakers not considering federal policy when looking at cannabis industry decisions and vice versa? federal policymakers not necessarily looking at what the states are doing? Well, you know, you asked earlier about what is going well in Oregon versus what are challenges even seven years, eight years in. And one of them is in the area of tax policy. And I touched upon the the concept of 280E federal tax, but there are tax policies within Oregon, for example, that don't necessarily consider the impact of 280E. Now, consumers across the country are extremely sensitive to price. And because there's such a robust illicit market, they have their choice of going and participating into the legal market or the illicit market. And I've developed models. One of the things I did early on is I developed models on pricing sensitivity, on elasticity, and how that influences decision-making by consumers to convert from illicit to legal markets, right? And Consumers genuinely want to participate in the legal market, and they'll even pay a premium to do so, just as long as the premium is not too much. Well, some of the tax policies across the country disincentivize legal participation because the premium is too high, and Oregon, unfortunately, is right there on the cusp of tipping over 
to the too much of a premium versus, you know, just right. It's kind of like the Goldilocks, right? So in that sense, when states, and there was a recent proposal to increase sales taxes in Oregon at the local level uh, to backfill some of the allocations that have been allocated away from cities and counties and like genuine concern by cities and counties, right? But the solution was to increase taxes. Well, when elasticity is high, meaning consumers are very price sensitive, and when businesses cannot absorb the hit of increased taxes, then the policies tend to push people out of the market, push consumers into the illicit market, and it only hurts those small businesses again and the business owners that are either female or from communities of color. And all of this is interrelated. So you've got federal tax policy, heavy taxes on your business, and then you've got a tax policy at the local level that reduces your profits, reduces your revenue. And if they looked at, if those policymakers, both at the state and federal level, looked at simply the entire picture rather than just their portion of it, they may try to propose policies that were much different and much more supportive of the cannabis industry. The same thing applies on a recent proposal at the federal level called the CAOA. It's a bill that was proposed for inputs, at least, by Senator Wyden from Oregon and Senator Schumer and Booker from New York and New Jersey, respectively. But the way that they taxed cannabis at the federal level, it didn't allow for the consideration of state taxes and local taxes. So the cannabis industry right now is literally being taxed out of existence. And it's all because of the lack of perspective in incorporating the entire tax policy at the federal, state, and local levels. If we see federal cannabis reform and it becomes descheduled, do you believe that there will be more communication between the feds and the states on policy? Do we go to one national market and regulatory body, or is it still done state by state, similar to how alcohol or tobacco is regulated? Once again, uh, it's a hugely complex topic, uh, you know, and, and and that's, you know, as I entered into this and as I have evolved from kind of a, a local analyst to a regional to a national and now an international figure, I've got clients all over from Asia, Africa, South America, North America. And so I've realized that this is really a really complex industry. And what seems to have simple, elegant solutions, it's just not the case. There's a lot of moving parts, and it's it's very, very dynamic. But in terms of the impact of decriminalization, I think because the state's have already deployed existing regulatory programs. They're used to regulating it. They understand their own local market. Then there's a greater potential for success for the federal government to set federal standards for public safety, be it standards for pesticides or use in agricultural applications or labeling and content. And then once they have those national standards, then allow the states the freedom to deploy their regulatory structures as they see fit. I think that's how it's going to go. But one thing that's been very, very interesting to me as I look at this from a global perspective, because I have a, a forecast for every country in the world now and, and now for every state. So I get to see how the inner connectivity between all this is. And right now, the U.S. market is about a quarter of the global market from a dollar perspective. But as decriminalization and full legalization occurs, it'll bring in international competition. And as such, it'll bring in lower cost supply. 
and so it'll draw down the value of the U.S. market while increasing the value and influence of other markets. So, say in ten years, I think the U.S. market will represent maybe a quarter. I'm sorry, significantly less than that. And the dominant players in the global marketplace will be Asia and Africa because they have more consumers. And they they consume not equally amounts, but because of the law of large numbers, they'll be a major influence in the cannabis arena. So I think there'll be a fundamental shift as prices normalize globally. There'll be a fundamental shift in favor of Africa and Asia more so than North America. There's just not enough people. If a U.S. economy faces that, do you believe that would motivate the federal government and possibly even the state and local governments to reevaluate their taxation policy and try to better compete globally? Yeah, you know, in a lot of the speeches and educational seminars that I give, I always say that it's important to think globally but act locally. And here's. Just a little perspective on this. In some places in South America and Asia, the production costs of cannabis are about a penny a gram, and yet in the United States, it's twenty-five cents a gram, fifty cents a gram sometimes, depending upon if you're outdoor, or indoor, or what have you. So there's this risk that American manufacturers, American producers face of. Not being able to compete on a global scale. So while it's important to be mindful of your local jurisdictions and all the rules and regulations in a given state, the world is not waiting around for the United States to figure out their cannabis policy. They're still developing their markets. They're they're legalizing. You know, close to seventy countries now have cannabis reform so far, and it's growing every day. So there's a global marketplace out there, and until the United States market, both at the state level and federal level, realize that, then each day that goes by, it may set up the U.S. market for lack of competitiveness on the global scale. You know, one of the reasons that people appreciate my data. And my insights is that I don't sugarcoat these things, and I'm not a cheerleader. Like I said, I don't take a position; I just present the data. And what differentiates me is I don't necessarily look in the past; I look forward to what does this mean for the future. And I recently gave a speech in Berlin, Germany, and a German entrepreneur came up to me and said, "Wow, you gave a rather sobering update on the U.S. cannabis market." And he goes,、uh, "Americans are generally cheerleaders, and you're not." And、he goes, you know, for an American, you're not so bad. <laughs> Talking about the markets and looking at global competition, would cannabis start to be marketed almost like wine, where there's certain regions in the world that produce a particular product that has a higher market value or more demand? And I only ask because the Pacific Northwest has had a history, even in the illicit days, of producing very high quality cannabis. And now that we have our legal market, could something like that develop over time once we see a global industry and global competition? Yeah, and that type of activity from a state and county policy level is already starting to occur. I recently did an analysis of the brand value of Northern California cannabis to Napa Valley wine, and the brand value of Northern California cannabis is. Far greater than all of Napa Valley wine, so they already have that global market and global tradition. 
So recently in the California legislature, there were these policies geared towards certain terroir, which says that you can't say that something is Humboldt County cannabis unless it was actually grown in Humboldt County. And I see this as a way to protect the brand of Oregon and California cannabis and produce a premium value but have it at a localized basis. Ultimately, I think that while there'll be large-scale cannabis production in areas where it's appropriate to do so, and I see this mainly on the industrial side, but on the on the higher THC cannabis side as well, I think that ultimately things will be more localized, like local breweries and brew pubs, and you'll have can of tourism, and you'll visit the cannabis plantation in a similar way that you would visit a, a winery. And so just think Willamette Valley Vineyard, you know, and then a couple of miles down the road, you know, you've got Cascadia Fields or whatever you want to call it. You said earlier that we're looking at a $100 billion market here in the United States, and it feels almost like a gold rush. It's just exploding. Is this growth something that we're going to see continue for quite some time? Is this sustainable growth that we're seeing in this market? It's interesting. I've looked at the growth rates. I I track the sales and revenue in each state every month. I've got a team of people that dig into that, and that's basically their full-time job. Well, over the last couple of years, we've seen this phenomenal growth, 35% year-over-year growth from 2019 to 2020. And we're forecasting another 35% growth in 2021. But that's not sustainable. And a lot of that growth is U.S.-based. It's it's based upon new markets coming online. In the meantime, you've got a state like Colorado or Oregon, and they've captured about as much as that they're going to get. So while Oregon is, uh, we're forecasting, going to be flat to down over the next couple of years, or growth rate just relative to population growth, what I'm seeing is that a lot of this growth, 18% in 2022 nationally, 11% in 2023, that growth rate starting to slow. So you've seen this big surge and now it's starting to wane. And the source of new growth, I think, will come from more states coming online. And what's interesting is people just assumed that the growth in Oregon, which experienced similar growth rates to national numbers, but based upon the data from the National Institute of Health, the number of consumers, the participation rate, percentage of people participating, actually went down. And so it's counterintuitive. And so what drove that growth rate across the United States and in Oregon over the last couple of years? Well, it was COVID and it was people working from home. And so they had more opportunity to consume because they didn't have to go to work. And so they could consume cannabis while working. And so they had the greater opportunity to ingest cannabis. Now that people are going back to work, and you got kids back in school, that surge, that COVID surge is going to reset itself and go back to the normal growth rates. So that's why Whitney Economics is forecasting that 18% growth versus 35% growth this year. It's really fascinating. A lot of investment bankers and a lot of large corporations that are looking at deploying capital into the space are saying, you know, what's in your magic ball, Bo? You know, what is what does the future look like? You know, that's what I'm predicting. It's not this accelerated growth anymore. It's more normal growth in line with what we had seen in previous years prior to COVID. That is really interesting. 
It's like a COVID bubble. It makes complete sense, though. I generally run counter-narrative on these things. Initially, people were saying that because so many workers were displaced due to COVID, especially in the service sector, that the sales would actually go down. And I said, no, no. And I actually published a paper on this in May of 2020, so right as COVID was hitting. And I said that the demographics don't support it. There's people generally are between 35 and 55 that are consuming, and they're relatively comfortable, higher income. You know, they're above living wages, let's put it that way. And so they can afford and they weren't displaced. So a lot of the consumers that drove the growth wasn't new consumers as much as it was existing consumers that just had greater opportunity to participate in the market. And so, yeah, so there's a lot of stereotypes associated with the typical cannabis consumer, that being, you know, a Cheech and Chong guy or some 18-year-old that just wants to get stoned all the time. But that's not really the case. It's more your soccer mom. It's somebody that, you know, is incorporating cannabis not for the aspects of getting high per se, but incorporating it because it relaxes them or it reduces their inflammation and pain management, or it gives them an opportunity, you know, to incorporate that in their active life. And so by having the combination of older professional adults that have disposable income, that was a great recipe during the COVID to drive increased sales much more beyond your stereotypical stoner type that's 18 years old and just lost his job and is on unemployment. One of the things that I've talked to the other guest about is the fact that Because it's still a Schedule I controlled substance that we don't do medical research in the United States, it's all being done in foreign countries. If federal reform happens and U.S. research is opened up, I would think that would present a pharmaceutical opportunity on the therapeutic side, the medical industry that we're not necessarily seeing right now. Have you looked at that kind of data? Is there a pharmaceutical economy that could come from this? Yeah, that's very interesting that you mentioned pharma in this whole equation, because early on in the legalization referendums, some of the largest contributors to vote no on cannabis was the big pharma. And so, and that's really, really well documented. But currently, and in, in my firm tracks the number of medical patients in each state, and currently there's roughly 3.7 million medical patients. And in states where, and this is data from the National Institute of Health, where there are states that have access to legal cannabis, state expenditures for pain medications and Medicare and Medicaid payments, state payments associated with pain management alone decrease 10%. So there's this positive economic benefit associated just with the medical application of cannabis and incorporating it into their lifestyle. A lot of patient counts went down. In Oregon, I would say that was a little bit of a black eye on on the deployment of cannabis here is because they eviscerated the medical program to the tune of at its peak, it was close to 80,000 patients, and now it's hovering around 20 to 22,000. So there's not as much participation on that side of things, but there's still a need for it. And there's lots of consumer surveys that, that show that there's this Venn diagram, if you will, of there's a medical, a pure play medical patient and a pure play recreational consumer. But in the middle there, there's a lot of purchasing of cannabis in the recreational space for medical purposes. So 
that whole medical versus adult use is a little bit murky, but the data is clear that there's medical applications consumers are realizing the medicinal impact that cannabis represents, and they're gravitating towards products more so on those medical side rather than just the getting stone side. I was fortunate enough to be on stage in Berlin a couple of years ago where Dr. Mishulam was speaking. He's an Israeli medical doctor that first discovered and isolated the THC molecule. And he's involved in 68 clinical trials across the world. And I think he just, he had a birthday just recently. I think he turned 91, right? So, uh, so he's still continuing his work. And his presentation was on all these medical applications. Then I presented data on why people consume. And it was very interesting, even though the science wasn't there, the consumers were already there. So it was an instance where science was catching up to what consumers already know. I found that to be really kind of an aha moment for me in my research and understanding the decision-making process of the cannabis consumer. It's fascinating. You know, I've been really blessed in just some of the access that I've had. I, I mean, you know, I'm just an average Joe, and yet I've met world leaders talking about cannabis, and I've met leading physicians and researchers. And so I feel really quite fortunate to be able to actually make a living at this. But I was doing some economic research of the Canadian market, and I got access to this redacted data set of 20,000 patients at this clinic in Canada, and a majority of them were Canadian veterans. So over a five-year period, they averaged like at the beginning of their, you know, clinical um, involvement, they averaged about six prescriptions per veteran. And then over a five-year period, those prescriptions were replaced by cannabis and they went down from six to five all the way down to one or zero. And so there was this really compelling evidence over time. Now, it's anecdotal. It's not double blind, mind you, but it's compelling enough nonetheless. And a lot of that was for PTSD. And they not only gravitated towards a particular strain of cannabis, and that strain was being cultivated throughout Canada, but they actually gravitated to a particular farm. And so it was really, really fascinating to see that level of detail and to see that the positive impact that they had and the shared knowledge that that they had to gravitate towards that one particular farm. It was, you know, it's, it's rather extraordinary. I know that one of the larger parts of your business looks at the industrial hemp side of this industry, which these two industries are fully interconnected. I would love it if you would come back at a later date and we could do an entire episode on just hemp knowing what it's being used in now, looking at the potential for that in the United States and around the world, because I'm sure we could talk for a very long time just about that. Yeah, you know, I just got back from a trip to Washington, D.C., and part of that was talking to lawmakers about cannabis policy. Then also the other part was talking about industrial cannabis policy. And there's a lot of intricacies in both those industries, and they're interconnected in some ways, and they're completely different in others. And so it was a very robust week filled full of really, really fascinating talks at all levels of the U.S. government. It's a, a fascinating topic, and you're absolutely right. I could talk about that for an hour or two. Then I'll have to have you back on. If people want to learn more about the work you do, where can they go for more information? Yeah, thank you. I've got a website at WhitneyEconomics.com, or you can 
email me at bo at WhitneyEconomics.com. And I try to pride myself on my responsiveness. So, but if I don't get back to you quickly, then it must be, it must mean that I'm traveling and doing policy work in some other area. But but yeah, feel free to reach out anytime. And I will also tell the audience that if you just Google up Bo Whitney, you can find many YouTube interviews with him, many podcasts that he appears on. This is a man that knows this industry inside and out. And I thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with me. Yeah, you know, it's uh, interesting. A, a media firm just reached out to me and on the average, my work is either Whitney Economics or Bo Whitney is quoted in the press somewhere globally once every six hours. So it's it's been an amazing ride. And it all started from that one student of mine asking about how to set up a cannabis business. So the rest, I feel really blessed um, because so many people have given me opportunities to learn and to understand the market and then to also help educate others. And and this is a perfect example of how thankful I am of these opportunities. So thank you very much for giving me this time today and, and to help talk about cannabis to your audience. Thank you. And yes, we will definitely have you back on. Bo Whitney, founder of Whitney Economics. Mainstream media. You've just listened about the economic potential of a legal and regulated national and global cannabis market. But for many decades, cannabis was used as a weapon aimed disproportionately at populations of color. In our next episode, we talk to the co-founder of New Project, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to raise capital for, educate, and mentor BIPOC cannabis entrepreneurs with the goal of economic justice. That's next on Mainstream Media on the Coin Podcast Network.